Hello, my name is Najiba Saeed. Um, I am currently at Claremont School of Theology, but in the fall I'll be joining as Associate Professor of Muslim and Interreligious Studies um, at Chicago Theological Seminary for an endowed chair position. Um, so my journey to this work, I have, as you heard, a JD um, from Indiana University, Bloomington, in which I, it's now 19 years that I, 19 years ago that I, um, I graduated from that program, and before that program, I had also studied traditional Islamic law at an unaccredited seminary. Since now we do have accredited Muslim seminaries, at that time, 21 years ago, we didn't, um, and actually left a PhD program <laughs> at Emory, a fully funded five or six year program that I was uh, admitted to at the age of 21 right after college. Um, and I left a PhD program because at that time, now 20-something years ago, supporting, as we all do when we're 21 years old, admitted to a PhD program, we want to study South Asian Muslim women and their identity development and formation. Basically yourself, right? <laughs> so you want and at that time, Emory's Islamic Studies program, Ethnic Studies program, isn't anywhere what it, what it is now. It's a, it's a very important and wonderful program, but I just didn't have the support that I needed. Um, so I ended up going to study traditional Islamic law, and then I ended up going to law school after that. And um, I spent, uh, out of law school, I spent three years running the Asian Pacific American Dispute Resolution Center, the only Asian uh, Pacific Islander organization in the country that did community-based dispute resolution. Then went from there to an organization called the Western Justice Center that does conflict resolution education, um, started, by, started by judges of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And um, after running those two organizations that did conflict resolution education and intervening myself, I'm a mediator that's in probably, I have about several hundred cases that I've mediated from restorative justice cases, keeping people out of the criminal justice system to environmental conflicts to basically any conflict you can think of, I've mediated in some way. Um, and so I was doing that as I was running these organizations and doing a lot of interreligious engagement, interreligious organizing, interreligious peacemaking, but presenting at academic conferences and writing academic papers because I knew someday I wanted to end up as a professor. So I wrote my first academic paper with Asifa Qureshi. It was one of the groundbreaking, groundbreaking prayer, prayers papers on um, Islamic family law in U.S. courts, and we wrote that 20 years ago. At that time, I was an executive director, and I was teaching adjuncting as well. So I had the sense that I wanted to go into the academy at some point, um, but I was essentially just kind of keeping that profile up. And then Claremont School of Theology developed an interreligious program and had a position open in interreligious education, and I applied and um, got the job. <laughs> So that was, that's been my trajectory to the tenure track. Um, and so it's a very unique one, but I think it was intentional. Um, and so I had to, because in, essentially in the work that I do, it's a new field, interreligious studies, um, interreligious engagement. We have a PhD now at Claremont School of Theology in interreligious education. So when Claremont was looking for someone to teach, they were interviewing comparative theologians, they were interviewing folks that didn't have the practical experience. I had some of the religious training, but I had also done this work. I had presented on it at conferences. I had held conferences with the largest Muslim organization in the United States on this work, 
and it didn't even exist. So these were things we were creating a field, I, and the field was really out in the world, and it meant that I had to, um, in some ways, in some ways I had to create the market for the job that I eventually had without knowing that that job would exist at Claremont School of Theology. Um, and I always approached it with a very uh, strong sense of commitment to research. So as I mentioned, I was presenting at academic conferences before I became a professor, um, writing uh, academic articles as well. I wrote another paper um, for a law journal on police and community mediation, because I also do, I've, I'm also an expert in uh, police shootings and what to do after with communities. So I wrote the academic article on the work that I was doing. So again, it was this idea of creating these academic, sort of creating an academic discipline for the work I knew eventually I wanted to teach, but it didn't exist yet. I mean, it wasn't that diabolical, but it was intentional. I knew that people, finally the academy would catch up with what I was doing because I was one of the few people doing it in the country and it was, so developing these model programs wherever I went, documenting them and presenting them at conferences. So that was essentially my path and my positionality in the development of how I came to where I am right now. And I can answer some questions about how I teach in my doctoral program and mentor because I come into the academics world from a, a very, a, almost before I was an academic, a, sort of a 12-year history of, of building um, and working in community settings that allowed for my eventual hiring and now, um, now moving to another, another graduate program, essentially, hopefully, starting and replicating a lot of what I've been doing so far, but essentially doing it in Chicago, so, great. If you, if you think it, if you dream yes. it, they will come. <laughs> Amazing, it's like field of dreams. Like, hi, <laughs> hi everyone. Uh, good afternoon, thanks so much uh, for joining us here today. I think this is a really wonderful and generative panel that Annette has put together. And I think these are really important conversations um, that a lot of us need to be having. Just a quick show of hands. How many people in this room are graduate students on the market thinking about? And, and the, uh, how many are faculty, um, administrators? Okay, just because I know there's like different kind of um, you know, voices that we have in the room and, and I would like us to all think together. Um, so just really quick about myself. Um, my name is Sylvia Chan Malik. I'm actually in the American Studies and Women's and Gender Studies Department um, at Rutgers, New Brunswick. I'm a joint appointment. And I actually come out of a non-traditional department, the Ethnic Studies Department at UC Berkeley. Um, which was a department that was founded out of the political goals of the Third World liberation struggles of the 1960s, um, and very much a department that was trying in its uh, inception, uh, trying to train its students, um, both undergraduate and graduate, to be a sort of cohort of activist intellectuals. Um, where we would always be doing work in the communities that we were do also doing scholarship and research on. So that's very much the ethos um, that I came out of. I was also at Berkeley um, as an undergraduate um, and also did ethnic studies at that time. So directly related to the subject, I, you know, I, I, I can kind of bring more about my own work and how that might be pertinent. Um, to this conversation maybe in the discussion. But about the subject, the first thing I wanna say is I think as an educator and as, as you know, graduate students, as students and educators, what we have to imagine right now is a new way of training students. Mm -hmm. 
We really have to imagine a new way of training students, and I'm constantly confronted by this. And the first thing that I sense more than anything, and I sense this, sense this from undergraduates through kind of people in the market, the incredible anxiety. Like, I feel an anxiety coming from my students that I have never felt before. And I've been teaching for, you know, 10 years now. Like, you know, um, more than that, if you count graduate school teaching, right? So, so that's just the first thing, the elephant in the room. Everyone is anxious. Everyone is always freaking out, right? And so it's like, what do you do when everyone is freaking out? Right? And what I realized, because I've had a very non-traditional path into the academy, and I'll, I'll bring that in a little, is that the first thing that I tell my students now, right, from their first year as an undergrad grad to the final year of graduate school, is that what I have learned through my path is that nothing is wasted, right? Because the first thing that I, I you know, sitting here um, in this room being the person trying to <laughs> you know, offer advice, I don't know if that's a great idea, um, is, is that I had a very interesting path into academia. I worked um, out of high school, I I I'll just name you all the jobs, and maybe you can think about all the jobs you've had since high school. I worked in retail, I worked in the library, I worked in bars, I tended bar all through college. After, um, I booked bands. Right? I decided I wanted to book bands, and I booked band, bands for a, it was a very cool job, local nightclub. After that, after booking bands, I decided I want to write about music. So I became a music journalist in the Bay Area and actually became a columnist um, in the Bay Area for some publications, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, the East Bay Express, you know, and did that for a while. Um, after writing, I decided I want to do an MFA, right? And somewhere in there, I decided I wanted an acting career. Right, so I, I did all these things. I had headshots. I think I was in some like Japanese like technology commercial, like some industry <laughs> commercial when I was 21 or something. You know, so so like as as where I sit now, I think about all these things that I've done, and and you know, I got to grad school. I didn't start my PhD program until I was 28, right? And so there were people like you. 21 who were in my grad program who were like, I've never had another job except school. And I'm like, oh, well, that's nice for you, isn't it, right? <laughs> and, and so I spent a lot of time at age 28 sitting in a graduate program go, going, I've wasted so much time. You know, I've wasted so much time. What do I do? Like, I, you know, I'm bartending, booking bands. Like, how does this fit into an academic career? And so what I realize, and what I realize now, you know, um, is that every single skill that I developed in that time has come into use and been of enormous benefit to me in this profession. Even bartending. Even, no, you know, bartending so much. Multitasking, managing personalities at their worst. <laughs> when people are tired and, you know, off their rockers, you know, like all those things, you know, I am um, um, public speaking, you know, dealing with people, interviewing. I was a journalist interviewing people. I, I do interdisciplinary work. I work with very different communities. I move around. I work in different spaces. Every acting, you know, really, I realized that, you know, coming to conferences, you have to use certain speaking skills, certain skills of engagement, eye contact, all these types of things, speaking to the back of the room, every retail. You know, managing difficult personalities, once again, every single job, as meaningless as it might have seemed at the moment, mm -hmm. 
has come into use mm. in this career. And so for graduate students, I tell them, they're like, oh, I'm working on this thing. I don't know what it's going to do. Every bit of research that you do, everything you do, right, is not wasted. It might not go into your dissertation. It might not go into the paper that you're writing that semester. But whatever you kind of got into and dug into and thought about really hard and wrote that paper, that's in you now. You have that. I have a paper that I wrote in my first year of graduate school, which I kind of put aside, you know, about the hometown that I grew up in and geography and kind of think about racialized space. And I want to return to that now. Do you see? I mean, I thought it was a waste of time. Oh, I spent three months doing that. And it was such a waste. And so I think that's a way that we have to start. I mean, I think we as faculty members and as staff have to find ways to talk to our students where, you know, we are not their therapists, but we, we, we are mentoring them and training them to be in the world. So it is part of our job to understand and acknowledge their anxiety because it's real and it's not unfounded. It's not unreasonable that they're anxious, right? And kind of work with it, not against it. Um, the th second thing I just want to say is for those of you who are, you know, graduate students, and again, this is also a pedagogical, this is a mentoring thing. I always ask my graduate students in their first year um, two things. I want them to know who they are right now, right, so that's the first thing. And then think about who they want to be. And this means two, so the first kind of things, knowing who you are, is just a bunch of questions. You know, what kind of life do you want to have? I, not what kind of work do you want to do? What kind of life do you want to have, right? Where do you want to live? Because that is not a question that most academics get to, you know, if it's really important to you to live in a particular place, you're going to have to really think about whether this is the profession for you, right? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Um, is, is money important? I mean, is it? I mean, some, for some people, it's not as important. For other people, it is. These are real practical questions. Like, how important is having a particular type of lifestyle to you? What kind of house do you want to live in, you know? Um, is writing important to you? Do you love to write? Is teaching important to you? Do you love to be in a classroom? Is public scholarship important to you? Are you techie? Are you a tech, techie kind of person? Are you someone who can incorporate digital stuff? Um, are you entrepreneurial? You know, all these types of questions, like, I, again, like part of the training is like, I try to talk to the grad students and say, what kind of person are you? You know, what are you inclined to? What are your interests? Right? And no, ask them to know that about themselves, because I think that already opens up um, a terrain in which, you know, if it's not the academy, you have all these skills. And then think about who you want to become, right? And when you ask yourself, what do I want to be like in 10 years, right? It's not just the job. I mean, I think all of us in this room probably understand if you stake your soul in this job, it's not going to end well, right, in this profession. It's not going to end well. It's not good. It, I mean, I wouldn't encourage any student to kind of stake their whole, you know, wellness and health and, you know, kind of self-worth in their, you know, in their job. You shouldn't do that anyways in any job. So what would you like to be doing if you had any choice that, you know, if, if you could just kind of dream yourself into the future? in 10 years? Would you be in a classroom? Would you be doing advocacy and activism? Would you be doing uh, religious or spiritual work? Would you be doing administrative kind of managerial work? Would you want to do something creative? Do you want to be working outside? You know, outside or inside? All these types of questions. What do you want? Right? 
And at the end of the day, you know, I think those are the types of questions that I as a faculty member, and I actually did this to my students because I've been at my current job long enough to have students that have finished. And I said, remember what you said your first year? Because every single one of them was like, I want a TT job, you know? And by the end, I've got you know, students who are working in nonprofits, who are doing, who are working in a, a private high school, and you know, they're, they're still kind of writing and thinking, but they have taken other paths. And, and for the most part, I mean, you know, they might still want to look for a tenure track job, but in most cases, they are fulfilled in doing what they are doing for now. But that, they're still on their journey. So I'll just, and with that, you know, I just think all of us need to reimagine how we want to train and for, and for students, how you want to be trained. And I'd love to hear that in the discussion, um, how you're doing this work and how students, what you want from your mentors and your advisors at this moment in time. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, my name is Eric Williams, and I am the curator of religion at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. I um, thank you all for coming, and I'm delighted to be here today. Um, I'm filling in for someone, but I find this to be a very important conversation, and I wish that, to be honest, that I had been exposed to these kind of conversations uh, during my training and as I was trying to kind of think through vocational possibilities um, because um, you know you do you do you did have the folks that were uh, at the master's level who wanted to be chaplains and the folks who wanted to be missionaries and uh, folks who wanted to be ministers um, uh, but that, that was basically you know the options that you're then you had some folks who wanted to do kind of social services kind of kinds of um, vocations. Uh, but I just, I just wasn't exposed to a lot of um, possibilities. So I, um, I originally got into the study of theology and religion. Um, uh, my father was a minister. Um, I had a lot of questions about how I was raised. And um, when I went to undergrad, at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, there was a, uh, a gentleman in the congregation that I attended. He was one of the ministers uh, in the congregation, but he was also a professor at uh, McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago. Um, but he was so brilliant and so thoughtful. And I mean, he had data. People would say things all the time, but he could tell you, you know, why he's saying this. And I said, wow, if I ever become a minister, I want to be like him. So I would do everything he did, I would support. Um, and then, um, you know, I wanted to go to law school, actually. That was my dream. And, um, but I really got into, I really kind of got into thinking about religion in this way, and theology and faith. And I, I decided that I wanted to go to seminary. And he invited me to come to uh, what they had, a, like a, a preview weekend. I went there and, um, I still wanted to go to law school, but I said, I'll do this first because this is good. And I could ask all of my questions about the way my father raised me and all these things. <laughs> um, I wanted to work through some of it. And um, went to McCormick and 
did the M MTS. Um, in my readings, I was um, I became intrigued with the person who was at Duke University, and I called him one day and I read his articles and I said I just want to talk to you, and he and I told him I wish I could study with you and he encouraged me to apply to the program. Uh, applied to a program, which was a THM program, actually. But I enjoyed my time there so much that I ended up reclassifying so I could get a second year and did the MDiv there. Um, did the MDiv and um, started, um, at the end of my MDiv, I took a position working as, talk about vocational possibilities, the Faith Community Liaison for the City of Chicago Department of Housing. Couldn't believe it. But they realized that they, if they were going to put a dent in homelessness, they couldn't do it without the religious communities. And um, through a series of events, um, I was the person that they chose. Um, but I still wanted to get a PhD. So I did that for, uh, for one year. And I left and went to um, the University of Birmingham in England. Uh, started the PhD program there. And um, things went well, but um, uh, the book that Achebe writes, Things Fall Apart, <laughs> Things <laughs> Fell Apart. Um, and I ended up coming back home because my dissertation, my doctoral advisor, our relationship deteriorated. Um, went to the, uh, came home, but it was, I, was, I came home at a wonderful time because there was a school in Michigan that was, they had started a faculty fellows program, and it was they were interested in bringing a, a uh, pre-doctor, uh, um, a doctoral candidate in to teach courses. And so I took my first teaching job before I finished the PhD at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan taught at Western for two years, and I, at the same time I was having a dispute with my doctoral advisor. He was a very powerful man in my department, and so I had to take, I had to take on the institution. I won, though, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but then it got ugly again. They wanted to, because I had um, messed with the order of things, um, they uh, didn't want to help me finish. So. It became another fight. So I decided, you know, um, to, I wanted to tra I transfer it to another university, University of Edinburgh, which is where I finished my degree. Um, so I taught two years at Western Seminary, taught two years at Ashland Theological Seminary. I go back, this time I go back to the UK to go to, go to Edinburgh, finish the Edinburgh degree. Um, and I, 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 before I finished, I, I, I told him I need to come home for a year. So I came home for a year and I taught. It was a year I said I was doing field research, but I actually took a job at Iowa State University. And I taught in the history department. Cool. Now, but what, what, I want, what I want to tell you is I wish someone had told, had told me earlier. Um, but I had two job offers. One was at Indiana University, what's it called? Indiana University of Pennsylvania. The other, which, was a, which was a religion. But there was also this position in the history department was history and African American studies. And I decided that I would take the history position because it would provide an opportunity for me to rebrand myself. 
which was a game changer for my life. Though I had a PhD coming in religion, I took a job in history. Let me fast forward. I go back to Edinburgh. I taught there for a year, just one year. Went back to Edinburgh, finished my degree, came back to the US because I got a lecturer's position at Harvard University in the Department of African and African American Studies where they asked me if I would teach history. Do you see? <laughs> so I rebranded myself and created a whole new world of opportunities. Taught at Harvard for two years, and the museum was looking for a historian that was also a subject expert in religion. <laughs> and so I rebranded myself. And so I, I think about, uh, I think about this in, in, a, in a different kind of way, I guess. Because um, if I were to train students now, PhD students, I would want to expose them to the vocational possibilities. Because there, I mean, there's so many possibilities, endless possibilities for people with degrees in religion. You are not a prisoner to the professorate. You're really not. But you have to do that work and kind of turn over the stones to see what's out there. Sometimes I just, I do this, I'll just go on like indie jobs and I'll put in religion, I'll put in curator, I'll put in um, public history. And you will be surprised the kind of people, the kind of organizations that are looking for people with religious studies training. I mean, that pay you extremely well. And so I, I, I'm, I, now, since I've been doing this work as a curator of religion, one of the, um, so, so I, I do acquisitions, right? I go and collect objects for the museum that tell stories. Um, and um, I do research to really verify that these things are really what people say. Um, I do public programming for the museum. I have events like um, we had a conference called Recovering the Bones African-American Material Religion and Religious Memory, where we, where we decided that we would do a conference on religious objects. How can we derive religious knowledge beyond text? Um, we brought a paleontologist in. We brought an archaeologist in. brought a folklorist in. brought a historian of religion in. We brought a religious historian in. It was amazing. Um, we, uh, we had another event called, um, uh, uh, it was called, uh, Healing the Sick and Burying the Dead on Traditions of Death and Dying and, and traditions of, on Traditions of Death and Healing in the Black Religious Experience. There were all these different practitioners in, scholars in, uh, talk about these topics. Um, so the, the public programs, also the um, public partnerships, like this, um, they had a big conference on James Cone. They brought us to the table. We, we worked with them on that conference. Um, and then I do a lot of public speaking. And one of the topics where people are inviting me to speak at universities, I was fortunate enough to be at the University of Denver to talk about this same question. But I was going to tell you that in uh, December, the first week of December, Yale has invited me to come to the religion department to talk about the same thing I talked about when I was with you. Because it's, it's, it's a frontline topic. They're, they're not creating any more teaching positions, in mass for sure. 
And so we need to think about, I encourage people to reflect, study, write, but also to begin to think about um, how you can use your, your training, uh, the training that you have, the, reflecting on things that you love um, in, other, in other contexts, and how um, institutions and programs and departments can be more intentional about um, helping the students reflect more broadly on these vocational possibilities um, because, um, yeah, the other worlds of possibilities and um, I'm interested in trying to help people think about that. Wow. Uh, you know, I'll use this one, I think that's easier. Hi. Um, wow, well I have, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm Caroline Schroeder, I have to go by Carrie, I'm on Twitter as C.T. Schroeder, and um, I had a very traditional path, uh, you know, college degree in religious studies, took a year off, but then did more coursework, um, and then went into an M.A. and Ph.D., um, and then had a series of postdocs before a tenure-track um, position, and I um, even though I got my tenure track position right before the Great Recession, like immediately before the Great Recession in 2007, um, I had been on the market for uh, like seven years and had, it's decided that that was going to be the last year. You know, I was going to get a job somewhere else. I was living in the Bay Area and I was like, I will just get a job somewhere here in the Bay Area because I cannot do, I cannot put myself out there anymore. Um, and now I'm, um, and that was at the University of the Pacific, um, which is a small comprehensive school um, in the Central Valley of California, and now I've just moved to the University of Oklahoma. I have never taught at a university, I mean other than in a postdoc I had at Stanford, but I've never taught, um, you know, my faculty positions have not been in programs with PhD programs. So Pacific was purely undergrad, um, and I did counsel students who were considering going to grad school. And then now I'm at the University of Oklahoma, which is a large research university, but neither classics nor religious studies have PhD programs. And I am perfectly fine with that. So one of the questions of what is a faculty member to do, I am certainly not advocating that we now like start a PhD program. Um, the University of Oklahoma now is kind of a center of gravity for late antiquity studies. I'm there, Scott Johnson's there, Kyle I mean, there are all these people who do late antiquity. There are like five of us. There's no program in late antiquity, um, and even though it would be a great place to do it, and I would not advocate for it because of, you know, the current environment. It's ridiculous. Um, so I, um, so that's part of my context uh, is in talking about this. Um, but I think that um, there are a couple of uh, things I'm thinking about in my position where I will be teaching graduate students that are not in my department, but graduate students in the humanities mm -hmm. um, because of my work in digital humanities. Um, and you know, straddling religious studies and classics where classics is having an even greater crisis right now. Um, so I think, first of all, I keep in mind that the continuing production of critical knowledge about religion is essential for our functioning society, right? And so that, you know, what we're doing 
um, is still important and what we're doing with our students is still important and to not feel that sort of sense of hopelessness because um, that is important. Um, and that there are structural elements that we need to keep on our universities and also our professional organizations to address. So when I had new faculty orientation at Oklahoma, one of the first things they said was, we want to increase our rankings and status, and the number one way to do that is to increase the number of PhDs. Because mm -hmm. that's a really big criteria. How many PhDs, right? Um, and I was just sitting there like, whoa, this is you know not, maybe not for the humanities, right? Um, and so there's a structural incentive, there are many, many structural incentives to creating more PhDs in an environment where um, the teaching jobs are fewer. And I liked Annette's framing and the framing of some of the other panelists of trying to think of this as, not as a, a time of precarity, but a time of abundance. Yet nonetheless, I mean, as Annette described, I think most of my colleagues and what I see from um, you know, advanced graduate students and new PhD graduates who are you know, coming out and who are hoping to have faculty positions, what I'm hearing from them is their faculty advisors still have their heads in the sand. So that's what I hear over and over and over and over again. So um, I do think we have a moral imperative to mitigate you know, some of the harm and to really rethink. Um, and I do think um, that one of the, th so a couple of strategies um, that I think programs practically should be doing um, are, I mean, one, the culture of, to, to change, you know, how do we teach differently, you know, you asked. I think changing the culture from the get-go, I think we all should be reading Kelly Baker's co-edited book on, um, uh, I can't now remember the name of it, but Joe, with Joe Frusioni, I don't know how he pronounces his name, on um, career, I think it is literally like careers outside of academia, mm. right? We all should be reading that. We all should be encouraging our colleagues to read that. Um, it just came out a year ago, right? And um, we should all, I think we should be very transparent. And I thought about this a lot as, I, as undergrads were coming to me saying, should I go to grad school? Where should I go? We should be very clear where the PhD students that we graduate are going, what are their placements, and not to ghost the students who aren't in tenure track jobs. Because that's also a phenomenon, is that programs ghost their students who aren't in the careers that they deem acceptable. And so we really need to celebrate our students, whether they leave after you know, their exams and just take the MA and go on and do something, or whether they finish their PhD and are doing something that's not a tenure track job. We need to be celebrating all of them and just being presenting that from the get-go. Like, this is what we do, this is who we are, this is who our people are, and we embrace that. And likewise, to then bring them back, right? To, you know, just the same way we bring back, we bring guest lecturers who are superstar researchers, we need to be bringing folks like you and many more. There are many, many more um, folks who are doing really interesting work um, in in museums, as public writers, or who are high school teachers, right? Or people in student affairs. So to bring them back into the program, you know, as speakers and guests and um, resources in the same way we bring, you know, the, t the top researchers in the field, right? 
And then I would also say we need to recognize that some of the growth areas in higher ed, right? A lot of our students who don't, who may not come from, um, say, community activist backgrounds, like um, some of the folks on the panel, but folks like me, I mean, we want to be in a college or university when we finish. The growth areas are in student affairs and in educational technology. Those are the growth areas in higher ed right now. And so to encourage our students to you know, spend the summer doing an internship or working in a student affairs job, there often are a lot of opportunities for grad students to be working in the dorms or in some kind of student affairs position. Um, we should be encouraging that or any, uh, any other kind of summer job instead of the culture. I mean, I loved my PhD advisor. I love her, but her culture also was, you know, in the summer you should be doing your languages and writing the papers for the seminars you took from me because we spent the whole seminar like reading and then you spend the summer writing the papers, right? And like, that's not a real, that's no longer, well, I don't know if it ever was, but that's no longer a realistic thing. You know, people, you know, we should be celebrating and encouraging all those skills. Nothing is wasted and it's all very useful. Um, and I also would encourage students to learn about organizations outside religious studies working to transform grad education. So a couple of things I would point to would be the Haystack Group at CUNY, the City University of New York, founded by Kathy Davidson. Um, Haystack stands for Humanities, Arts, Science, and Technology Alliance and Collaboratory. Um, they, you know, they have a whole online community, they have fellows, they have a conference, um, and Kathy Davidson is really at the forefront of rethinking higher ed in today's environment. Um, and I, you know, I work in digital humanities and I'm often asked, no, what's your real work, right? If I tell them my digital project, they're like, my colleagues will be like, no, 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 what's your, what are you really working on? Like, like what's the book, right? And um, that trickles down to, the, to graduate students also and graduate work. Like, are you acknowledging public writing? Like in ancient religion, um, this online forum, Ancient Jew Review, is amazing. And it was basically created by graduate students. And they have these incredible articles. I mean, they've basically produced an online you know, magazine, journal, forum. Um, and that should count. Um, that should count. And um, faculty, for students who are interested in that, um, you know, we should be provide, figuring out ways to provide funding for training um, in, you know, education and technology and research and technology. Um, especially if we're like, I don't know what that is. I don't have to, okay, you don't know, that's fine. Make sure your students have the resources to go to the places that will provide that training. And there are summer institutes, there are programs, um, and you know that is on you to, to make sure uh, you send your students there. So um, I think I will stop there, yes. <laughs> so our time is going way too fast. Um, I'm going to ask each person up here just to maybe in two sentences, um, say what advice you would give to faculty today for better supporting students um, who are interested in uh, diverse careers with uh, PhDs in religion. Right. So I'll just give a couple of, because 
I didn't intend to spend that much time on my own bio. I find myself very uninteresting. But um, <laughs> I also think of syllabi these days when I teach. The first uh, third is the literature in the field. The second is the literature that's critical of whatever the genealogy of knowledge is. And the third is usually a constructive project. So for a number of my classes, the students leave with a project that they can implement in the real world. So it could be a grant proposal for the project that they are thinking of. So, and I, I've used this kind of modality for a number of courses. They're, they can be highly theoretical, but in the end they leave with something that is constructed in the real world. So that is for, I think, some portion of my classes are in that mode. Another is we've added to our curriculum, for instance, I now teach a class called Mediation and Negotiation. We teach it from Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and Buddhist perspectives. I teach another class called Managing Interreligious Nonprofits. So we've added to our curriculum recognizing, but what we do is I think some seminaries and some schools will add a class that, but not ground it in the discipline. So to me it's about managing organizations, but we have to read Drucker and Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist perspectives on management. So these are not separate issues. I think looking at a faculty, a whole, a whole faculty, and seeing how do you, because I work in the area of practical theology, how do you engage theology in the needs that our students have when they graduate? Um, and one of the other things, the other, I was just gonna, add that I've asked my students in, in many of my classes, they have to go engage with community in some way. They have to observe someone who's doing what they want to do. A student got a job at um, a Holocaust Research Center and I, I asked her how she got it. She said, oh, because we had to go observe a faith-based leader and you made me go observe the director of this center and I ended up getting a job there. So actually my classes are we're using for job placement to get people, and sometimes people think getting out in the community means just service. It can be service, but it can also open up opportunities of employment. And I tell students, um, I think one of the questions I ask them is, who does what you want to do, and how did they get there? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important question, not just what do you want to do, but who's doing what you want to do. And so particularly, um, one of the things that, two things that are really important that we train our students for in job interviews, particularly students like myself um, who come from minoritized racial, ethnic, immigration, I mean all the statuses that I, uh, in my positionality, is we often um, talk about those as deficiencies and I think it's a major, um, it's important to talk about how the communities you bring to the table how you ethically engage them and the institution in interview processes. How do we do that ethically? Because I think it's a huge asset. I think institutions now are looking, for instance, to be multi-religious, multi-ethnic. And instead of framing it in a way that's a deficit in the conversation, um, or just I study that, or I know how, I can give you the literature on that field, I think being able to say, I'm able to engage in those communities, I'm in able to have a conversation, I'm able to bring to the table, because institutions sometimes need you more than you need them, but if you don't know how to articulate what you bring to the table, so I think doing it in an ethical way, the connections to community, and also being able to talk about how you become indispensable to an institution for their own survival. So if you have raised money, if you have done these things, that's 
part of what academics have to do now. And being able to demonstrate that you've done that before you take the position and being able to talk about your field just as much as being able to say, well, this is, these are some of the foundations I could, I tell my students that are going in for job interviews, you should have some ideas for grants that that department could go after if you're proposing new project areas. And I think that has made a big difference. So those are some pieces of how we can train students in the classroom, but also think through as they're doing their job interviews, the competencies that they bring to the table that are not often, um, that are not often displayed in the job interview and when to bring them up. And we can talk about that. I don't have time, but there are ways to do it that are effective. If you are a faculty mentor or administrator, create a one unit, one, one semester for your students talking about careers outside academia. Very basic, just create it. If you are a student in a program who, do, who doesn't have something like that, ask for it. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they're like, oh, we can't do it right now, the program's like this, start a working group. Tell, get a faculty advisor. Just really basic, just put that, it has to be part of the conversation, right? Um, and then this, the quick, really quickly, um, the second thing for students in particular, um, every inter, I tell my students, you know, it, this is not a safe space. You are not in a safe space. This is a professional space. And, and I would extend that to every interaction that you have outside of the classroom as well. From the moment you start, you're saying, this is my, what I wanna do. Something about this is something that I'm going to do. So when you go to do community engagement, when you go to observe, when you go to do research, every single, um, every single thing is not just a professional possibility, but a possibility, right? And so I just think that type of, a, a different sort of expansiveness and openness to what could happen in our lives um, might just you know, kind of be a way of thinking that can shift us from these narrow tracks that academia has traditionally put us into. So, um. so what I would suggest, um, if I were to make a suggestion, um, would be uh, I think that people need, students uh, need exposure um, exposure through literature, that you, the things that you're reading. You know, you can read these scholars, but you also can read some curators. You can read some, some archivists or some other folks who've reflected on the same, the same matter, but they come from a different angle. Because, uh, any, I mean, I think that that makes people, wow, I didn't know that they thought about things like this. Um, you know, kind of have those aha moments. But then I also thought that your idea about um, some kind of some kind of seminar, uh, a, a course where that they could get one credit for, and um, I would I would recommend that you bring people in from different um, different vocational um, uh, 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 trajectories to come and to talk to to lead the course, and make the course exciting and let them see that there's there's joy outside of the professorate. <laughs> I don't know, I, and so I think so, or, or either just having, having a series, if, if you can't make it a course, have, it, have a series, and I think that what, the, uh, what, what they're doing down at the uh, University of Denver, that was amazing. And I, I said, that, my goodness, if, I don't know what I would be today if I had something like that. 
They had, a, a, I think you had three seminars? Well, I'll let you, I'll let you explain that. But they, they, they exposed their students to folks who were talking about working outside of the traditional academy. Um, and it was just, it was amazing. Um, and to hear the perspectives of people who were doing all this great work, using their training in these different um, fields of endeavor, I thought was, was amazing. And then, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, um, so I said, I think I had a few words mostly to my fellow faculty before, um, and you know, number one being, uh, to sum up, being, you know, this really is our problem, and it, this may be my little subfield of late antiquity, but um, that, you know, there is a real kind of, what do we do? This is, you know, I don't understand the world now. Like, ah, this is how I did it. And the sort of like, well, no, this is our problem. And we really do need to just completely reorient. I mean, I, could, I had a very traditional path and I'm sitting here talking about these things, so you can too. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so anyway, so I think that, that that would be the number one thing I would say, is like you need to reorient and you need to be doing those same readings and listening to this, you know, to, to these recordings um, as well, because it's really criminal, I think right now, not it's really criminal not to, so. And my advice to faculty is to start early before students get to a PhD program. When they're asking the question, I'm looking for a program, that's the time to say, well, what do you want from that program? And it's usually more than one thing. It's usually not just a career. There's all kinds of personal reasons that we all do this. But the career part, that's a good time to say, well, have you looked at all of these opportunities, right? That's um, a time to think expansively so that students, when they do get into a program, have a, they're informed as they're making those decisions about what they want to do. So now we want to open this up to you. So if you have questions that you would like anyone on the panel to address, please come up and use the microphone so that it can be recorded with the rest of this session. Hi, so uh, my name is Lena, and uh, God willing, I will be graduating with my MTS from Vanderbilt University in May. Um, so I'm gonna try to make this as broad as possible, even though I would like to like hijack this panel and like <laughs> have my own discern <laughs> discernment process as part of it. Uh, I'm loving this conversation so much. I've never wanted to, to uh, be a professor. I've done some teaching. I did two years of teaching in high school. And I'm also one of those millennials, I'm 26, who like the idea of working 40 years at the same uh, job is like the opposite of what I wanna do. And um, I'm currently exploring the idea of doing a PhD and my why I would wanna do a PhD is mostly because I'm super, super curi curious and would just love to like learn more about the world. And I could see myself in the future, I would love to continue researching, but more guided towards uh, developing, like working for the state or for a nonprofit, that kind of trajectory. And when I talk to my professors, their advice have been very, very mixed. But a lot of people and a lot of peers too say, if you don't want to teach, don't do a PhD. So 
in the broadest sense of the world mm. of the word is like my question if I don't want to become a professor if I'm not interested in teaching should I spend the time and energy and money to do a PhD? Hmm. That's a big question. Yeah, okay. uh, well, I, I'm gonna say, well, I wanna first um, echo something one of our panelists already said, which is, um, you know, nothing is wasted. So if you, you know, the PhD programs are still gonna be there. They're not going anywhere despite like, Every, you know, everything going on in the economy, the PhD programs are interestingly not going anywhere. So you have time, right? Um, so that's what I would say first of all. Um, and that time, and if you don't go right away, you may come to the PhD program in the way that you did where you're like, well, this is what I'm doing and, you know, with a broader sense of where you can go because I really do I do think right now there's this tension in that PhDs are about like the production of knowledge in this particular way and yet like the landscape of that knowledge within universities is shrinking and so I do think humanities you know, the production of knowledge in the humanities is more and more going to be in the public sphere. So I don't think a PhD is useless, but I do think it's not advisable to take on a lot of loans. So my, my, my thought is there's time, right? I don't know, what do you think? Do you yeah, think? yeah, well, I, um, I think the PhD is a fantastic degree. I really do. Yeah. And I think it has transcending uh, possibilities. Um, that you can re receive a PhD in religion and be the head of a, of a private school. Yeah. Um, you can do a PhD in religion and be the president of a small college. Um, I just think the PhD is a fantastic degree because after, at, at a, when, when you get the PhD, there's a certain crowd, they, 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 they don't really, um, they don't really scrutinize you about what your PhD is in. You can move around with a PhD in ways that you can't move around without it. Um, but, 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 but what I would say to you is if you, are, if you have the energy and, and, the, and the, um, the drive and the hunger, um, find someone to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Just yeah. find someone yeah. to pay for it, but I think it's a great degree, yeah. and, and it opens up worlds if you're willing to think outside of the box. Yeah. A lot of people get PhDs and they won't think outside the box, so I mean, it's only this. But um, I have a friend of mine who is just um, has a PhD in religion. Um, he's taught many places, but he just took a position at a private school yeah. doing equity, uh, okay. diversity and something else and inclusion and the guy is making so much money I didn't yeah. I couldn't believe it off. Like, I could not believe I said are you serious oh that was unbelievable and he's still talking about the things he cares about using his um using his training but he, he is he's out of the rat race yeah and he's free and he's happy yeah. Yeah. and he's getting paid some great money so I, I would say find, I would say, I would encourage you to, 
because it sounds like you, you have the, um, the curiosity, the intellectual curiosity. Um, just find someone to pay for it. Find someone to subsidize your curiosity. So I think there's also another bias we have to talk about in PhD programs, which is the more public or the more popular you become, very often the less seriously you're taken in some circles. Yeah. So I think that is changing with millennials coming into our doctoral programs. People are coming in already with 20,000 Twitter followers. I mean, it means something. No, I don't, it's not really like I've seen um, reverse mentorship where people who have a social media following and a public persona, because academics are very socially awkward, many of them. I'm being very yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's really true. <laughs> I'm just pointing this out. Like, I, the culture of academia is yeah. a very, um, it's a very stodgy culture, particularly the more prestigious an institution becomes. So I'm just pointing this out, that I think in some ways, the public persona with a PhD People can capitalize and monetize that. I know some folks that are getting their PhDs, they go into the program knowing when they come out they have the doctor in front of their name, they're gonna write popular books, and they're gonna have a popular presence. And so I'm just pointing out, I, I'm, that's probably, people will never tell you to get a PhD for that reason. But I would say it's not about whether you wanna be a public persona, it's not whether necessarily to me about whether you want to, um, utilize it for a non-academic uh, endeavor. Um, but I think looking at education broadly is helpful. In addition, you were talking about the government, private schools, public schools. You know, I did conflict resolution education and started uh, conflict resolution programs for universities. I was teaching at universities around the country because they didn't have that expertise and got paid really well for that for a period of time too. That's also another thing is thinking about starting your own private company for teaching, whatever it is that you are an expert in. There are many ways to build large revenue streams through contractual ways. But you have to be someone who puts yourself out there. You have to be charismatic. You have to be interesting. You have to be articulate. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't expect that market to take you in. So that's something just to keep it, what is your personality like? If your personality is not like that and you'd rather be in the library all the time, then that's a different, I mean, just know who you are um, and know that you may not get support and respect. I have a doctoral student that is, I'm mentoring, she's at a different institution. She's already getting speaking gigs and getting paid more than professors who've worked 20 years in the field, right? So it creates jealousy. I mean, this is something we have to talk about too. What do we do when our students are more well-known than we are because we don't necessarily put ourselves out there. So this is a reality that's happening. Um, people are hustling, people are coming to PhD programs already having started a company at the age of 17. I mean, this is the reality of who these students are. So I just want to point that out, but I think it's knowing who you are. And the, above all, and I'll end here, is know what you want out of the doctoral program, and if you're going to do something that's different than the majority of the students or for what that doctoral program was set up for, don't expect support necessarily from that program. You may actually be working against the culture, so you just have to know what that cost is. And I'm going to pick up there and just very quickly say yes, know what you want from the PhD and know what your end goal is when you are choosing which program to go to because they are all different and some will be more welcoming of whatever your goal is than others. 
everyone. I have a question and sort of a case example, I guess, um, to illustrate it. My question for the group is, in the courses that you've taught, what are some surprising outcomes you've seen from students? Because I think right now, part of you know exploring what the non-academic non careers look like is it's, we don't really have good pathways and good models yet, and so we're just sort of like, oh, that seemed to really work. Um, and uh, an example of this, so full disclosure, Professor Saeed is my, was my doctoral advisor, my chair. Um, in one of the classes she was mentioning, um, the project was, um, it turned into basically a business plan for the expansion of a homeless shelter. Um, and the proposal that we developed out of that is turning into a real building right now. So, good. Yes, it's awesome. It but So I'll think about that sometimes. It, it, we have to work for the city, so you know it's been a three-year process since that course, but it's happening. And I, I'll think about that because a very often, I mean, that's not something you would think about putting on a CV, but it's a lot more valuable, I would say, than it turning into an academic paper that maybe 30 people will read and then it sits on a shelf, right? Like it's it's a huge win that comes out of the academic education. Um, and so I guess I'm just asking, you know, thinking about what other cool, surprising things that you've seen students do that then can inspire sort of more ingenuity down the line. Um, really, so the best dissertation I've read um, since I've gotten to my position, or probably ever, um, was of a student that defended last year, and all of us on the committee um, after she defended um, said, we all need to call our presses because this is perfect. Mm -hmm. Like this was, like you never read, I mean, you never read a dissertation like this. It was, it was called uh, Opioid Futures and this student had done a whole case study um, in her hometown in Western Massachusetts looking at the factories, the land, spirituality, the opioid crisis and thinking about how all these things fit together. And it was utterly brilliant just brilliant. We were like, who's calling Duke? Who's calling this? Let's, who, who want, you know, let's get her. Um, Lindsay um, had always just been one of the just most wonderful students in the department, you know, just, just a lovely person. And of all our students who are trying to get TT jobs, she said, I don't want it. I'm going to move back to Massachusetts and I'm going to start um, a drug uh, rehab program. And I'm going to put all these things I learned uh, through doing this work um, and apply it. And she's there now um, doing this work. And this is what she's doing. She does not want to go into the academy. She does not want to get back in it. She wrote this beautiful thing, and she's done with that. And this is what she's doing. And I just think it's amazing. You know, and her book will probably be out next year. So, and yeah. You know, her, her book is going to help her organization. That book will be a product that can be put out there. So a lot of my students are using their master's thesis as a product that is, is I mean, it's well-researched. So I just want to point that out, too. Sometimes we think academic literature only has a certain level of, of, uh, of, of an audience, but I think other colleagues want to speak, so I'll just end there. No. Can I just say one thing, too? Not just for students, but sometimes you surprise yourself. Like, I am currently, you know, um, you know, in a process where my partner and I, we've decided, you know, I would like to not just be in the academy for the second phase of my, or, you know, post-tenure. 
Um, we are starting, um, um, a, 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 you know, an organic farming and greenhouse kind of business. Or, or you know, we're thinking about this, thinking about like fun. So I mean, I think again, like things surprise us. You know, things that happen in our life surprise us. You know, at every single phase. And if we just look at it as a process and not as a set path, I think it's, it's great to be surprised. It's great to have fun. So. Okay, so I have a, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Oh. Hi, my name is Hara Jean. I'm actually a, a PhD student right now at Hebrew Union College. It's my fourth year. Uh, my field is Bible and Ancient Near Eastern Studies, so it's very narrow. Um, and I actually have you beat. I started my PhD when I was 36. So, <laughs> um, so I totally understand, and I'm really grateful for I think this is like the best session that I've ever been in in SBL, which is great. Wow. <laughs> I've only attended like the academic ones because that's why you come to SBL, but this was, you know, he brought me, and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, think, I think mostly because I never felt like I was a scholar, so this is, this is great. My question is actually, I think, Dr. Williams? Yeah. But I'm sure everyone can answer. So you mentioned about um, rebranding yourself. So my field is actually very narrow. Um, I do ancient years and studies, and my thing is Akkadian literature, which is very narrow. Um, and you mentioned rebranding yourself, and I would love to teach, but we also all know that you know there's no teaching jobs out there. I've worked at a museum like as a volunteer for a little bit. But I was wondering, like, how did you rebrand? Like, how did you get that job teaching history? You know, when you're, especially in my field, it's like so narrow, and I feel like the most I can teach is maybe religion, and that's even like pushing it. So, like, I was wondering how, what, what got you that job? Multiple, pretty much. Multi multiple drafts of cover letters, <laughs> right? Where you begin to talk about yourself in other ways. But to begin to talk about your skills in other ways. And, and, and you, you can go so, um, because some of the things that you've studied are universal. And you can go so deep, to like, wow, this is exactly the person that we need. And, so I, and I had another offer, but I wanted to do that because I thought that that would give me some mileage in the future. And it has turned out that way. I needed a, I needed a job. <laughs> I needed a job, and I didn't mind reading to deepen my understanding in this area. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't have applied if I, it was something I didn't have the energy to. But I, but I said I can I can do this. I'm I'm teachable, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so so I, so I, I read. I mean that summer I mean I I worked my tail off, trying to deepen my understanding because. You know, some, some, of the, some of the students, I mean, they know a lot. I used to call them, when I was at Harvard, I used to call, uh, I would talk to my friends about the, the students, I would call them my student professors. <laughs> because some of them, they, I mean, they were so advanced, they had trained in some of these uh, board, especially the students that went to these uh, boarding schools like Exeter and those places, mm -hmm. they had already read a lot of the literature. Yeah. And they, had, they came with perspectives, so I had to really, I had to read the material with another degree of intensity. And, um, but, but, but you can rebrand yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sounds like a commercial, right? You can rebrand yourself. <laughs> no, yeah, but you, but you can. And I'm very happy to talk to you uh, further about that because um, it's, it's real and, and it, it gives you um, uh, additional lives. I, I just wanted to say something about um, a couple people I've worked with. I mean, I rebranded myself for this job I have. My job I have right now was not a, like a religious studies or a classics job. It's a digital scholarship job. So, um, but I have worked with a couple people also, PhD students who rebranded themselves. And, um, you, know, you know, one student, you know, she worked like me on Coptic monasticism, you know, got her PhD at a very high ranking program and was just like, I do not want to do the tenure track gig. Like I want, you know, I want to be free. I mean, that was really how she thought of it. I do not want that. And she's teaching Latin um, now in high school loves it, continues to work part-time on our project on some of the funding. So she has like, you know, this side thing where she still keeps up her Coptic and she's teaching Latin in high school and she is so happy. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, another uh, student who has a PhD in, in a history program, but with a religious studies, I was on hagiography. Um, you know, she got a tenure track job um, and so then wasn't working for our project for a while. She started while she was a PhD program, then wasn't working on our project for a while, and then um, left her tenure track job for a half-time job in um, a kind of an education technology position at a small college. Um, for personal reasons, there were reasons, you know, she, she needed to leave, move to a different location. And because of her work on our project, she was able to brand herself as somebody who could be the humanities, you know, educational technologist for this small college. And um, so, you know, I think there are, I think what part of, you know, I, I got a little sad when you were asking your question because I was like, oh, we're training our students to think of themselves so narrowly, right? Like, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, we really, yeah, to, to, to be more expansive and, you know, how can you see yourself in these different, I, I do think that there are, that you have a lot of options. So, so this is something that's come up several times, the idea of rebranding and also of being able to translate from one skill set, one educational experience or job into another. Those are really important skills for being able to expand your opportunities and careers. So I just wanted to highlight that. We don't have a lot of time left. I want to be sure that we get yeah. um, up to the last question here. Yeah. Hi. So I, I'm Dan Moses, and I work in career services at the University of Utah. Um, okay. I want to try something, if you all are up for it, um, <laughs> to address a tension that I think may exist for graduate students. And so if, if it's too silly or complicated, you can pass, but I would like to challenge all of you to make the case for branching out career exploration-wise in the language of your favorite theorist. <laughs> what? I don't even understand that. <laughs> um, why would Foucault? Next question. <laughs> okay, I will say, in my field, we have made the tenure track job our totem. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's good. And so we need to, yeah. 
I was thinking of Gloria Anzaldúa, and I think one of the things that's really important in um, in her work, but also just important in general, is the PhD for communities that have lived with such levels of precarity, yeah. particularly thinking. I think we have to embody who these bodies are of people getting PhDs. Yeah. So if thinking of Anzaldúa, if you're if there, if there's someone, for instance, in in some communities that I work with just having the PhD for a, a woman having a PhD gives her religious authority because she's not allowed to be clergy, right? And we know, for instance, one of the reasons some schools have demins is that women uh, in certain ethnic and other communities, religious communities, they just, they can have a, a pastoral degree, but they're not, they'll have an MDiv, but they won't get an appointment they have to get a demon, the doctor before their name, they have to have extra legitimacy. But it is really powerful for some communities who have one, per I've worked with communities where there's one person in the whole neighborhood or community that has a PhD. And they're able to monetize that sometimes or utilize it in other circles. I think we have to remember that there are places where that PhD means a lot and opens up doors in ways we, in our doctoral programs don't see. So I just want to point that out. That's why if a student who's coming with that co community and they're bearing that community with them, bringing them into the program, I often, and their research product is going to benefit that community. Thinking of Anzaldúa's scholarship that is transform transformational even 20-something years later. So I just want to point out, we can't assume that everybody wants um, the tenure-track job, but also it could be transformational for a whole community to have particularly a woman or someone from their community get that authority. It could change a generation. I've actually seen those shifts in some generations in my own community. Um, I don't know if this is in the language of any theorist, um, <laughs> but coming from an ethnic studies department, like I said, you know, um, coming from a, from, a, 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 from a training that is supposed to, you know, be kind of rethinking power relations in a society. On the one hand, I'm completely, you know, encouraging and cognizant of professionalization, of things like rebranding, of monetizing, um, you know, what, what you're doing, of trying to find a nice position. But I also think you have to understand something to blow it open and create something new. Yeah. So if we want to completely remake education, which I think is a fundamental um, you know, task that we are, you know, that is before us in this moment. I mean, what are we, we're in a moment of intense crisis in every you know, meaning of the word. We have to remake everything. I have, you know, we have, we, we have to think of future generations and so, if I did not have a PhD, I think, I mean, the skills that I've had learning, I, I, I think it's given me the insight to understand what we need to do differently, how we need to do over, right? And, and it, it, it gives me the platform, like you say, the access to say, okay, I want to try this. Let's do this, right? It's not, I don't want to monetize it more. I want to rethink the whole thing, you know? And so, you know, that, that's, that's what I think. I think we need to, you know, we, you know, we need to be working on this thing so that we can somehow remake everything that it is. So, so the theorists uh, of, of religion that I have been taken by is uh, Dr. Charles Long, uh, who talks a lot about imagination. 
and he talks about the, the lithic imagination. What is in the stone? And so I would challenge you that as you stand before the stone, that with the fullness of your lithic imagination, that you chisel out alternative vocational possibilities. <laughs> I think I got you. Okay. Yeah, I'm done with my toe okay. <laughs> Yeah, she answered it. You're good. And, and this is perfect because we are now out of time. But I want to encourage you, if you still have questions, to please talk with the panelists afterwards. And let's show our appreciation to the entire panel.